Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is William R. Kelly, and he just wrote a book in August 2015, 2021. The title of the book is The Crisis in America's Criminal Courts, Improving Criminal Justice Outcomes by Transforming Decision-Making. And Mr. Kelly is a professor, professor of sociology and director of the Center for Criminology and Criminal Justice Research at the University of Texas at Austin. He has taught and conducted research in criminology and criminal justice for over 25 years and has published extensively on a variety of justice matters. And some of his other titles are The Future of Crime and Punishment, Smart Policies for Reducing Crime and Saving Money, published 2019, Confronting Underground Justice, Reinventing Plea Bargaining for Effective Criminal Justice Reform, published 2018, also, From Retribution to Public Safety, Disruptive Innovation in American Criminal Justice 2017. Also, Criminal Justice at the Crossroads, Transforming Crime and Punishment 2015. And then also, Justice Under Pressure, a Comparison of Recidivism Patterns Among Four Successive Parolee Cohorts. That was published in 2012. But again, we're going to talk, talk about this book, The Crisis in America's Criminal Courts. There's been some changes under Trump. We can talk about that and Mr. Kelly's position on how to improve criminal justice. So, Professor Kelly, are you there? I am. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your background, can you talk about what led you to write this book, The Crisis in America's Criminal Courts? Um, I've been uh, working in the area of criminal justice and criminology for about 30 years. In the past 10 years, I've been focusing primarily on what's wrong with the criminal justice system, and more importantly, how do we fix it? A lot of academics are quick to complain, but then they stop there. Um, my mission has been to um, gather as much of the evidence-based research on, on effective reforms and put that together um, as a blueprint for essentially reinventing the American criminal justice system. Um, I started out with uh, the first couple of books were pretty broad, covered essentially everything except policing. And over time, as I've spent more and more time talking about various issues of, of the criminal justice system, um, I, my focus has become more and more narrow. Um, and that narrowing has led me to focus much of the, much of the attention in terms of criminal justice reform on the criminal court system. I mean, the, the criminal justice system is loosely thought of in terms of law enforcement, the courts, and then corrections. Um, all of those are important. All of those are fundamentally flawed. All of those are in desperate need of reinvention. Um, but for my money, um, I think we can leverage uh, a, a lot of a lot of the focus and resources in terms of fixing the criminal justice system by addressing issues related to the criminal courts. Okay, can you expound on in your intro? You talk about the current problems and how um, unfortunately unique the United States is in its criminal justice system. Can you talk about the current system and why it should be changed? Yeah, we've uh, everyone's heard. I shouldn't say everyone. Most people have heard the term American exceptionalism, and uh, that that means a variety of things to a variety of people. It is also unfortunate that it applies to the American criminal justice system. We're the world's leader in terms of punishment. Um, obviously, we're a large country, so our numbers are higher. The number of people in prison are, are higher, uh, but the rates of incarceration. 
uh, in the U.S. lead the world as well. For the past 50 years, we have followed essentially, and, and this is this is a, a generalization, but we've essentially followed one path, and that path has focused on punishment. That is trying to punish bad behavior out of people, everything from minor low-level misdemeanors to capital felonies. Um, the, the remedy, the medicine, whatever you want to call it, has essentially been the same, which is punishment. Uh, and that punishment is often based upon retribution. Um, I've heard some forward-thinking judges talk about anger-based decision-making. You know, Johnny makes this, you know, does this, does this bad crime, and damn it, he deserves, uh, you know, retribution for that. Um, the the unfortunate reality is that as much sense as, as that makes, I mean, as you know, many in the in the public, at least historically, have believed that punishment punishment makes sense. This it, it's an easy sell by politicians, even today. I mean, Trump was the law and order president when he ran, uh, wherever the hell that came from. Um, you know, at at a period of historically low crime rates, uh, he saw some law and order problem. Um, but it's it's been an easy sell, and it's been a logical sell. Uh, that, you know, law and order, tough on crime, uh, has been how we have gone about the business of American criminal justice. The unfortunate reality is that punishment doesn't work. It, it works on us. It works on non-offenders. I mean, we're all used to, you know, being, being punished or threatened, uh, you know, with punishment by our parents or our peers or, you know, teachers or whomever. But what... What, what American policy, you know, writ large over the past 50 years fails to appreciate is that criminals are different than we are. And that what we respond to in terms of, you know, I don't want to do this because I'll get in trouble, um, doesn't work the same way for people who come from different circumstances. And that's really broadly what we're talking about here are uh, what is it about criminal offenders that get them involved in crime in the first place? Yeah. Right. So, so what we've had in very recent times, you mentioned that 4.5 million people are in community supervision. Texas prison system has increased by 100,000, at least in the seven years. And you have more people in jail, but and also massive recidivism rates. And also, the you mentioned in your book, the First Step Act. That Can you talk about the uh, superficial effect of the First Step Act? I think it's largely symbolic. It was an effort to try and release some federal inmates from federal prison. Uh, you know, I don't know uh, what your audience knows about federal prison, but I mean, there is no there is no parole. So when someone is sentenced to ten or twelve years in federal prison, they do that full sentence. The First Step Act, uh, the name is appropriate because it is only a first step. Uh, it was an effort to try and mitigate the draconian approach to drug you know drug offending that we that we've uh, that the war on drugs has has led to so what the first step act uh, purports to do is to release early certain drug offenders uh, from federal prison uh, largely a product of the federal sentencing guidelines that mandated very stiff uh, often mandatory or mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenders so it was 
it, it, it was a reasonable thought to sort of push back from, you know, do I have to serve this whole damn, you know, 10 years here for, you know, a little bit of, you know, crack or meth or whatever. Um, but, you know, honestly, in, in the big picture, that's 1%. I mean, that's really, that, that's really uh, I mean, to call it a first step, I would call it a, a, a tiny first step. It's Not accurate, a, right? But it also contains a theme within your book, which are these guidelines that judges have to uh, abide by. But the federal system is only 10% of the U.S. justice system, and it all, what happened only affected very small amounts. So the first step, just like you said, uh, really doesn't uh, cover what your ideas are, the vast amount of, of, of reform. And you talk about so many criminal offenders are different than us. They typically come from poverty and disadvantage. Can you talk about the prison population and, and, and its characteristics, the current pr yeah. prison population? Absolutely. Or even the, the offender population more broadly, they're all roughly the same. Just that some, some folks, you know, end up in prison, others end up on probation or, or other forms of correctional control. It is, um, it is in many respects, um, the, the, the unfortunate of, of, of the world. I mean, I know some folks might say, well, this is just some liberal uh, nonsense. But if, if you look at the characteristics of people who end up in the criminal justice system, we call them justice involved. The majority have a mental illness. The vast majority have a substance use disorder. Uh, many of them have employment problems, educational deficits. As you mentioned, they come from backgrounds of poverty. Um, and, and those circumstances uh, lead to a variety of, of, of ways of you know, seeing the world, thinking about the world, uh, acting, making decisions about what to do, what not to do what they see as options or alternatives. Uh, be clear, I'm not making an apology for bad behavior. All I'm trying to do is help us understand better why people do it. I mean, consider this. Um, how many times have we heard, you know, when, when Johnny does something wrong, it's Johnny made a bad decision. Uh, and, and, and that's true. But if Johnny is under 25, that bad decision uh, more likely than not, is a product of the underdevelopment of the frontal lobe of his brain. I mean, neuroscience has taught us so much in the past 15, 20 years about behavior and in particular criminal behavior. Much of it has to do with, with sort of the, the neurodevelopment of the brain, but also things like 60% of people in prison have had at least one traumatic brain injury. Um, so a brain injury can clearly, I'm not saying they all, but can clearly lead to uh, cognitive problems that then impact decision making that the people engage in. So it's, you know, it's, we, we kind of demonize offenders, you know, these are the evil ones over here and they all need retribution. But what that buys us is the, is the fact that essentially every one of them will come back. The recidivism rate is 85%. That's an official rate. Those are the people that were caught. The, the true, the true reoffending rate of people who've been through the criminal justice system at least once is much closer to 100%. Yeah, it's incredible. And I don't know, you know, if there are any Fortune 500 companies that would still be in business if that was their, you know, their price performance was, uh, you know, 100% failure. 
Um, I mean, and, and there are many other studies, not just looking at recidivism rates, but many other studies that establish uh, the fact that punishment simply doesn't change behavior uh, among criminal offenders as it does among the general population. Right. So, I mean, you see this, but you also, I mean, you spoke about how this mental illness and drug use amounts to so much that it's almost like this mental illness becomes criminalized. So why there's problems here? Why aren't we address? I mean, I think that this is your part of your point is that we're not addressing some of these pre-existing things instead of criminalizing them. Or so what is the can you, can you compare the U.S. to some of these other countries around the world who don't have as much recidivism? Absolutely. I mean, and there are dozens of them. Many of them you know, are Western European allies. Uh, and people ask me all the time, what differentiates the U.S. from them? And one of the things is that they take seriously public health, uh, which includes things like mental health. It includes things like substance abuse treatment. It's not that they don't have any crime at all. They do. Uh, but but the, the, their way of thinking about it, the, the culture of their criminal justice system is so fundamentally different. Uh, it is not the, the, the waste can for people we don't know what to do with. I mean, that, that's where we are here in this country. We have made conscious decisions, we meaning policymakers, elected officials, that it is you know, preferential, cheaper, whatever, to use prisons as mental health facilities, to use prisons as dumping grounds for people who have drug problems. Um, if you look at Norway, if you look at Germany, if you look at you know any number of our Western European allies, they have uh, well-established uh, public health systems, uh, and therefore, you know, prison is not is not the first choice that people make when somebody you know, gets involved in, in some type of uh, behavior that might be deemed criminal uh, if they're mentally ill. I mean, here in this country, what do we do? We send the police. And in most jurisdictions, luckily in some, uh, there are, are alternatives, but in, in, in most jurisdictions, the police show up. They don't know what the hell to do. They're not trained to deal with somebody who's in a mental health crisis. So what do they do? They arrest them. They, then that starts the cycle all over again. And, you know, it's the, it's the old metaphor of the revolving door. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a series of conscious decisions that we have made in this country at all levels of government. Right. And, and, uh, it is interesting because the, when the police show up, then that creates the crime. Whereas if somebody else, other than maybe a mental health professional, there absolutely, wouldn't be. You know. Absolutely. You see somebody showing up with, you know, with body armor Kevlar, a gun, a taser, uh, who doesn't really understand, you know, like like a, a, a you know a psychiatric social worker would understand what's going on. They don't know how to how to resolve a situation like that, how to defuse a situation. And when when the person in the crisis sees a gun and a bunch of cops, that often tends to escalate things. So yeah, it creates uh, it creates another crime. And that then, you know, justifies, you know, the police acting as if this is a typical criminal situation and taking the person in custody and ultimately putting them in jail, which is about the worst thing you could do for someone in a mental health crisis. Right. That's true. And then what happens is it kind of uh, snowballs 
because the punishment, the crime, you say is criminogenic. Can you explain what that term means? Yes, criminogenic means crime producing, crime facilitating. Uh, brushing up against the criminal justice system has criminogenic consequences. That is criminal justice involvement. Uh, it's the fact of being in prison. This, this, is, this, is a, this is one of those things that some people just, oh, you're making that up. Uh, but not only does prison not reduce recidivism, the evidence indicates it actually increases it. The fact of being in prison, and you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, leads to higher incarceration. Our use of jails for pretrial detention, we, the example I was talking about earlier with the, you know, the person having a mental health crisis, or anyone else who's arrested for any other crime and booked into jail, there are negative consequences, criminogenic consequences for what is called pretrial detention. Uh, pretrial detention is basically, you know, judges making decisions, you know, should this person, you know, prior to the adjudication of their case, should they, you know, be locked up, separated from society, or should we, you know, let them go home, um, you know, on bail or something like that. And just that that time in, in jail, anything more than a day or two can have profound consequences on things like employment, uh, housing, uh, relationships, transportation. I mean, if you're in jail for a week, you know, you could lose your job. Therefore, you lose your income. Therefore, you lose your apartment. Therefore, you lose your car. And all of those things conspire to, you know, to, to lead, you know, to increase the likelihood of future criminal activity. Right. So it just creates more, you call it, downstream consequences. And so you have these other models in Europe. Norway barely has any recidivism and should be an example for the U.S. What about these kind of guidelines? How have they added to the, the negative situation in, in the United States sentencing guidelines? Sentencing guidelines really take away the, any kind of just, no, they don't take all the discretion away, but they take most of the discretion away from the judge. Um, they were developed, the, the, the first major set of guidelines were the federal sentencing guidelines, and they were developed in the 1980s during the Reagan administration uh, at the height of the war on crime, at the height of the crack epidemic, uh, when crack was first introduced into American cities. And, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, two primarily, one was that, uh, you know, judges were perceived as being too lenient and that there was the perception that when judges have discretion, they tend to discriminate. Those two problems had one solution in common, which was sentencing guidelines. That is predetermined sentences uh, that essentially removes the judge from that decision-making process. And it's up to legislators, it's up to sentencing commissions to then you know, figure out, well, let's see, we got this crime and this criminal background, uh, what's the appropriate punishment, 13 years. You know, how do they come up with that? That's a whole nother story. But the, but the result was that the punishment is much more severe under sentencing guidelines, especially federal guidelines, but also in several states than they were prior to that. So whatever the goal was, the ultimate outcome was harsher punishment. Right. Yeah, I remember that here in the, in California, it's the three strikes law. So yep. once you get that third strike, bam, 
I think it's yeah. automatic. Yeah. It takes away from the judge. I mean, can you talk about how, how the increase in population, what's happening in the U S criminal court system and, and what's its solution? Well, you know, the title of the book is the crisis in, in the American criminal courts. And um, I mean, that was a sort of almost a, a, a trick title because I think most folks realize that the courts are pretty crowded. Um, you know, anyone who's had any experience sitting in a courtroom or being near a courtroom, it's just a parade of people, you know, all kinds of things going on. I think people realize that, that the, the criminal justice system in general is overloaded, uh, but in particular, you know, they're Court dockets are, are full. Prosecutors constantly uh, are concerned about their caseloads, things like that. The irony, um, you know, the fact that the courts are so crowded, uh, the irony is that uh, that's a result, not of increasing crime. I mean, they've gotten increasingly crowded over time, but over that same time period, crime has been declining to where we are today, which is essentially historically low crime. The, the culprit is recidivism. I mean, that's what keeps the American courts uh, so clogged up. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one crisis. But I think the bigger crisis is the um, inability of the court system to do anything, that's a bit extreme, to do what needs to be done to fundamentally change behavior and in turn reduce recidivism. It's it's really the, the 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 key decision makers in the American criminal justice system. Yes, cops make the decision to arrest or not. That's important. And corrections folks, you know, make decisions about you know level of custody in prison or whatever. But the real key decisions are made by judges and prosecutors, and sometimes public defenders. But the real key actors. In the, in the American criminal court system, and, and therefore the crisis, in my mind, is the fact that the decisions that we make uh, do not address the reasons people engage in crime in the first place. Right. So it's that, that's a fundamental level of what is happening before to get them into the system, right? Yeah, it's like moving cases, moving cases, moving cases. The job of a judge is, is to work the docket. The job of the prosecutor is to move cases. I mean, that's why we have 95% of all criminal convictions are based upon a plea negotiation. Right. People think, you know, from, from law and order and, and movies and all that, that, you know, you have your day in court and you have this dramatic trial and the truth will, you know, will evolve. Uh, from all this, you know, uh, testimony. Uh, well, that's fiction. Uh, it's 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 fun to watch, but it's fiction. The reality is that uh, you know, judges have maybe two or three minutes uh, to make a detention decision. Uh, they have maybe five minutes to conduct a plea agreement uh, hearing. Uh, same thing with prosecutors. I mean, they have, uh, you know hardly any time uh, to hammer out a plea deal. I mean, it's all pretty much automated. It's all, um, you know, the, the enemy of this, the enemy of the court system is don't do anything different that would slow it down. And that's, that's really where we had the head-on collision with the criminal justice system as we currently know it and the criminal justice system that could fundamentally lead 
to positive outcomes, like not seeing people coming back. Um, you know, seeing when somebody comes in with a mental health problem, diverting them somewhere other than sending them to jail, divert them to a mental health facility. Uh, for someone who is is drug involved, you know, whether they're caught in possession or whatever, but it turns out they have a drug problem, what the hell does putting them in jail do? I mean, you know, not not having drugs for three weeks is not the same thing as treatment. There's just some fundamental misunderstandings about human behavior. Judges know the law, they know criminal procedure. Prosecutors know the law, they know criminal procedure. None of them really know nearly as much as they need to, given their positions, about human behavior and what leads to certain types of behaviors and what can change behaviors. Why do you think that, that all of those, that the society or the legislatures, either federally or state, are avoiding all of those things and criminalizing these behaviors? How did that happen and why is it still happening? It happens because I think there, there's some there's some justification in, in when people do something wrong, they should be punished. It's that, you know, Protestant ethic logic. Uh, and, and that's, again, what has driven criminal justice policy. Um, so, I mean, I, I have to think that um, that there's that culture that drives it. But there's also the belief that mental health treatment is fundamentally expensive and that drug, you know, drug treatment is fundamentally expensive. And who's going to pay for it? Is it, you know, is it the state? Is it the local jurisdiction? Is it the federal government? And, you know, honestly, if they would sit down for a minute and realize that, you know, the cost benefit analyses clearly show that treatment is less expensive than detention in jail or incarceration. Now, that's not to say that treatment is always going to be successful. I mean, clearly there will be certain, you know, situations where it doesn't work for whatever reasons. But, um, you know, our, our go-to solution is lock them up rather than treat them. The other thing that, that policymakers rarely think about and that is, is recidivism. Every time, let's say, I, let's say I have a heroin problem and I get arrested in, in possession of, of, you know, a relatively minor amount of heroin, but it's still a jailable offense. Um, so um, rather than, you know, send me to treatment, they send me to jail. I do my time. I get out. And am I better? No, nothing's changed. I mean, what am I going to do when I get, what's the first thing I'm going to do? Everybody says the same thing, more heroin. Why? Because nothing, I mean, they, nothing's different. Um, so every time I reoffend, and chances are it's going to be numerous times, all those costs are incurred again. I mean, the fundamental reality here is when you sort of lift the curtain and realize that what, what this focus on punishment and the failure of punishment to effectively reduce recidivism does is sends a huge um, bill to the public. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, every time I reoffend, it's police time and money. It's jail time. It's, you know, it's a uh, municipal judge's time for, you know, de deciding whether I should be in 
you know, they're de- detained in jail. It's prosecutor. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. So I mean, recidivism has costs, not only in terms of crime and victimization, but also in terms of taxpayer dollars. Right. And it seems like there's no broad angle look at the criminal courts. Everybody has his own pe- cog or place, the judge, the cops, the prosecutor, but they're not making it efficient or sensible anymore. It's almost like they're not involved in the reform. What reforms do you think, I mean, it's a big question, what reforms do you need to take place to uh, make it more efficient and decrease recidivism? Well, I think the, the focus on the courts, I mean, there are many, many answers to that. But since, I mean, since the topic here is the court system, I think um, one very broad but extraordinarily difficult solution is to help judges and prosecutors and defense counsel make better decisions uh, that lead to successful outcomes. Um, We treat everybody, the criminal justice system, essentially treats everybody the same. There are some exceptions. There are drug courts you may have heard of around the country where that's a diversion program where people can go and get treatment. Those are the exception. The vast majority of all people that come into the system are um, on the same assembly line, and it's the same routine of decisions that are being made, and everyone knows where this is going to go. It's going to be, you know, arrest, pretrial detention, uh, plea deal, uh, and then prison time or probation or something like that. And there, no one takes a breath and says, "Why the hell is this person here? Why? Why? Did, you know, what? What is it about this this person that leads him to commit this crime?" I mean, that's the whole idea. If you stop and ask that question, the fear is the criminal court system will collapse. Um, So a couple of books ago uh, that I wrote with a a federal judge friend of mine and a psychiatrist, we came up with the idea of developing expert panels of psychologists, psychiatrists, um, MDs, clinical social workers, individuals who have the expertise to... um, to screen and assess individuals when they come into the system, to better understand why they're there, and to better then advise prosecutors and judges on, you know, what is what is the best uh, strategy here in terms of balancing public safety on the one hand and reducing the likelihood of recidivism on the other. Those questions just aren't asked on a daily basis in the American court system. Right. Now, yeah. Right. How many drug cases are really a danger to the public? If they're only harming themselves, why are they behind bars? And you're right. I think it goes back to the Protestant worldview, the Protestant ethic. But it does it doesn't seem to fit the modern thing, both for justice and I would say efficiency, financial efficiency. Absolutely. I mean, if, if people realized how much money was being wasted, uh, we've spent a trillion dollars over the past 45 years. A trillion. I'm not even sure how many zeros are there, but a trillion dollars just on punishment. I'm not talking about the police. I'm not talking about the courts. I'm talking about prisons and jails. We spent another trillion dollars on the war on drugs over the past 45 years. And you sit back and say, well, what have we bought for that? And I'm glad I'm not the one who has to defend, you know, those choices because the answer, you know, ain't very pretty. Right. It's not solved anything.
Yeah, it's, it's not a report card you want to take to your parents. That's for damn sure. Um, so part of the, part of the solution is better decision making. Part of the solution, obviously, is you know uh, trying to slow down um, you know the the, the, the decision making in the courts. Uh, but, but the key is is in part better information, but also and, and a number of other things. But the really big one is changing how we think about crime and punishment, changing the culture of, of the criminal justice system. The irony here is the public gets it. If you look at public opinion, and this has been the case for the past at least 15 years, the public says, we think prisons should be used not to punish, but to rehabilitate. We think the point of the criminal justice system is to reduce recidivism. You know, if policymakers would listen to the public, I know that's a big wish, yeah. um, they, they would get a better idea. I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean where, where does that come from, from, you know, from the perspective of the public? Um, you know, it, it should be the foundation. The foundation of, of criminal justice should be reducing crime and recidivism. Um, you know, you were talking about Norway earlier or Germany. I mean, just in terms of thinking about crime and punishment, the moment somebody arrives in a, in a German prison or a prison in Norway, they begin the process of preparing them to leave. That is, you know, starting the process of, you know, thinking about what is it going to take in the short time you're going to be here, because prison sentences are pretty short in those countries, what is it going to take? What are you going to need to be prepared to leave here to lead a more productive life, a crime-free life? In this country, our culture is more punishment, the better. Um, so the other issue is we need to you know, readjust uh, our thinking, meaning the criminal justice system, uh, the culture of that, to focus on, uh, on success. I mean, success is not putting somebody in prison. Although the average prosecutor today uh, advocates for tougher and tougher punishment. I mean, the most recent survey I, show, I saw like from three months ago, you know, the average prosecutor is, is in the trenches fighting for harsher and harsher punishment uh, in, you know, in the state legislature or on a day-to-day -day basis in, in performing their functions as a prosecutor. Yeah, it's incredible. So, There's a huge difference between here and the Europe where you sit down, you get retrained in maybe computer science or something like that. The jails look like a country club. There's yeah. no fences, if there's a fence at all. Yeah. Here, you're in kind of a, you know, a pain facility or something where you just get brutalized. You get brutalized. You get, your, you know, your, your liberty deprived from, I mean, uh, you know, your, your liberty taken away. And then, and then you're released and you're expected to, you know, toe the line. Uh, when when the law says in Texas, this is an irony, in Texas, they will train you in the prison system to be a barber. But once you get out, being a barber is one of over 100 occupations for which a, uh, a, a, a felon who has been released from prison may not be lawfully certified or licensed to work in. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I'm not surprised, though. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's like, it's that whole, why should we let them, you know, why should we let them work 
in you know occupations where they might be near people that could be dangerous. Well, rather than applying that to everybody coming out of prison, why don't we make better decisions about who might be higher risk? You know, being a being a an elevator repairman. I mean, the list is really pretty silly when you look at it. Uh, or you know, the guy that, that cleans your pool. Or I mean, um, you know, it's just this wholesale. Um, again, culture of punishment, and you know, the punishment never ends. That's the, right. you know, it's, and then and then you realize, well, why the hell did he reoffend? Well, he reoffended because he's still addicted to heroin and he can't get a job. Do you ever get the sense of this is kind of like an enforcement of a class system where maybe people view these people should be in a lower class and stigmatized for their lives? Like, I think it's, do you think that maybe that comes from either the Protestant ethic or something about that? Because it just is, seems very merciless that you're almost like turning them into a caste system of untouchables. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, and I think that's related to poverty. I mean, I think people um, look down on those, you know, it's, yeah, it's the old Protestant ethic again. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, easy to say if you ain't born in poverty. Um but, you know, again, when poverty is correlated with many other factors, including, you know, uh, educational deficits, employment deficits, mental health problems, uh, emotional problems, drug use. I mean, so, I mean, and, and, and then, you know, there's this tendency to want to demonize, you know, poor people. And many of them are minorities, you know, and you have to, you know, go as far as Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow to appreciate that there's a huge racial component to all this. Um, and race and poverty are correlated. So that aggravates that situation. So, I mean, it's, yeah, a lot of it is, is us versus them. And, you know, we've been seeing a lot of that lately. Right. Uh, you know, and I think the criminal justice system is just another example of, of a wedge uh, that's used to divide uh, large groups of citizens. And those that are unfortunate enough to be in, in circumstances that get them involved in criminal activity, again, I'm not apologizing for crime, but I mean, if we appreciate the circumstances, um, it, it just perpetuates. Right. It's, an, it's a, a self-perpetuating unjust system and it doesn't solve anything. It, it yeah. doesn't, yeah, that's really the, the, the takeaway is it's that. It's like a perpetual motion machine. Yeah. Because you got, you know, the old revolving door just keeps revolving and, you know, you let them out, they come back. You let them out, they come back. And that's the story. Yeah. No, it's sad. Well, that's a great interview. Thanks so much for sharing that book. Where's the best place for people to buy it? We're almost at about 40 minutes. Uh, Amazon has it. Uh, and I'm sure the other uh, major booksellers have it. And do you have social media if anybody wants to reach out to you? Or um, I, have a web, to I have a website, williamkellyphd.com. That's williamkellyphd.com. Yeah. Put that in the show notes. Great. That'll look right on the screen, williamkellyphd.com. Okay, cool. Yeah. So people can reach out to you if they have any uh, any questions. I mean, it's just the system doesn't make any sense. The, the jails are for profit, so this system perpetuates another one. Oh, it's absolutely. like a Rube Goldberg device or yeah, something. It is, and, and it's an extraordinarily expensive one. Yeah, and I mean, just for people who are so concerned about 
efficiency or the market or whatever. This is the opposite of that. This is the worst way you could spend your money, in yes. my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, you know, my, my, what I often say is, if, if this was a Fortune 500 company, it would have been delisted, you know, right. decades ago. Yeah, no, yeah, very well said. Well, great interview. Thank you so much again. The name of the author is William R. Kelly. Title of the book is The Crisis in America's Criminal Courts: Improving Criminal Justice Outcomes by Transforming Decision Decision Making. Published August 15th, 2021. Thank you so much, Mr. Kelly. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, thanks. All right, stay there.